Well, I've never been called a rock star before. <laughs> so I guess thank you for that, Kim. Um, are you sure that some of you didn't think this was like a uh, Husker tailgate party? Because we've got, we have an awful lot of people here. So can everyone hear me OK? No. Uh, can you boost volume in, on your end? OK. Is that better? OK. All right, good. Back in the wee corners. Uh, I remember when we renovated uh, Arden Hall when I first became director of the School of Natural Resources, we had a trouble, we had trouble with the speaker system in the large auditorium that used to be the hotel and the conference center. And we couldn't figure out what was going on because there were speakers all over the place. And then we checked with facilities and found out that they forgot to connect the wires for some of the speakers. <laughs> so Alan Moeller, I think, maybe remembers that. <laughs> anyway, so. Yeah, today we're here to, uh, to talk about this issue of climate change. Um, I want to give you a sort of some basic science information and so on. I also want to acknowledge, first of all, other members of the team. Uh, I was part of the team that put this report together, uh, but also Deborah Bathke, Bob Oglesby, and uh, Clint Rowe, uh, other faculty members at the university, worked with me. And so we had a great team in pulling this together. But actually, the, the contribution to the report was much broader than that. Because if you've looked at the report, you'll see that there were a number of commentaries that I asked individuals, experts around the state, to write about their particular sector. And so in fact, we probably engaged an additional 20 faculty, uh, members of state agencies, people from groups like the Nature Conservancy, and so on, to participate in this process and think about what the implications of climate change for the state of Nebraska were for their particular sector. And I think that was very, very important as a, as a contribution to the, to the report because we didn't have time to go into separate studies on each of these sectors. We had to rely on, I think, the expertise of some of our, some of our colleagues. So let's get into the topic. Uh, if you haven't seen a copy of the report, uh, this is what the cover looks like. Uh, if you want to download that, uh, copies of the report are available online. So if you just go to go.unl.edu slash climate change, one word, you can download a PDF of this. You can also look at the executive summary. You can look at the actual presentation that I made at the Hearman lecture last September. It's here today, so you probably won't, don't, don't want to look at that again. Uh, so. This is the sort of the background of the report. And as Kim said, this was published last September, released in September with the, with the Hearman Lecture. And since that time, there's been a, a huge outpouring of interest in this report and how this report maybe can be used to take some further steps in Nebraska to move the conversation forward with regards to this particular issue. Now, there are some key questions that I often get, and I'm sure if you're an advocate and you talk to your colleagues and your friends about climate change, uh, a couple of key questions that we get. First of all, is the Earth's climate changing? And I think unless you live, lived in a cave for the last 10 or 15 years, uh, you understand, I think everybody understands that the, the Earth's climate is changing. The data supports this, but we support this because we're watching it unfold in front of us. And so that's, that's critically important. Uh, secondly, while there's kind of a unanimous agreement on the first question. The second question is, are humans and their actions the primary cause? 
And so while most of us, and I heard some people responding to that saying, yes, we are, um, this is where you get into a bit of a difference of opinion for a number of reasons. First of all, the issue of climate change is an incredibly complex issue. And so most people don't really understand the science behind this. And so that makes a difference, I think, in terms of whether they accept this premise or not. And I think the other reason is that if you think and agree that humans are the principal cause, then that puts some responsibility on you as an individual to help change things, as John was saying in his introduction. So a lot of people apparently are not in a place where they want to take on that responsibility. They don't want to try and do anything about it. And so that's a, that's a problem. So bottom line is the evidence is overwhelming. I mean, if you look at the data, data on impacts that are occurring, the data on temperature, precipitation, just look at things from all over the world, what's happening to plant and animal species and so on. The data is clear, this is, the evidence is clear that this is happening. And in fact, the science community has come together and said, we are, as humans, we are the primary cause. So let me go into that a bit more. Um, last March, um, Ronnie Green and myself, we invited Tony Leiserwitz, uh, who heads up the climate change communication program at Yale University to come to campus. And he gave an important lecture. I don't know whether any of you were, were here, a few of you were here and heard that. So Tony did a great job of sort of capsulizing um, the, the topic and his, his theme was climate change in the American mind. So they do a lot of surveying of how uh, Americans feel about this issue, how they're sort of polarized, but also how they're coming together and so forth. But it, one of the th interesting things that he did is he said he came up with five truths about climate change, and he decided because it's a, such a complex issue to express that in 10 words. That's not an easy thing to do, but he was very, uh, very effective in that. So the first two words are it's real. Secondly, it's us. Third, it's bad. <laughs> Fourth, scientists agree. And finally, there's hope. So to echo John's comments earlier about talking about gloom and doom, there is hope. But that means that we have to do something about it. We have to take some action so that the worst case scenario is not what unfolds in the decades ahead and so forth. So there's a dangerous trend or pathway that at least those of us in the science community see happening. And that is ignoring science. And they've actually given a term to this, calling it denialism. And this is the cover of a book by Michael Spector that's about that. And the subtitle is How Irrational Thinking Harms Our Planet and, and Threatens Our Lives. So if you haven't seen this book, order on Amazon. You can probably get it for less than $10, but, but read it. It doesn't focus on climate change. It's focusing on, I mean, it's one of the issues that he discusses. But it focuses on a number of issues that are important to us today where science is being ignored, but policies are being laid out by our legislatures and, and so forth. So Michael Spector didn't say what's on the right side of the screen. That's, those are my words. 
it's time to get past the emotion and the politics on this issue and actually start looking for solutions. And this is happening around us, but we, see we need more leadership out of state legislatures, out of Congress, and so forth. So we need to all work together. We need to put pressure on them to, in fact, provide this leadership for us. So I put this cartoon in there more as a reminder to me. Uh, some of us, <laughs> some of us are, some of us are quite passionate on this issue. So you know, Ken Dewey's sitting in the front row. I mean, some of us could talk for hours and hours. And, but I know there's a time limitation here, so I'm not going to talk forever. But I will talk for a while. Also. I, I think my task today is to try and assemble the pieces for you, okay? I didn't bring a screwdriver or a pair of pliers, but anyway, my job is to try and, try and put together a puzzle that you'll better understand uh, this situation. Okay, so this is the outline, and it's in general the outline of the report that we did and published last September. So I'm going to talk about introduction and background. I'll talk about climate change science, uh, why we're concerned about this, some of the observed changes in climate. How do we separate human factors from natural factors? Because sometimes you hear this, particularly from politicians, they say, well, this is all just natural. We have nothing to do with it as humans. Um, projections of future climate and the implications for Nebraska, and then some take-home messages. So introduction and background. So here I've, I've listed from a, from a website some of the most used climate myths, and these are the myths that deniers of climate change oftentimes fall back on. So the first one is climates have changed before. Well, yeah, we all know that climates have changed before. I added the bud. That's not the end of the, the sentence that climates have changed before. There's, there's another story there. It's the sun. There's no consensus amongst the science community. It's actually cooling, some will say. Models are unreliable. We can't trust the models. The temperature record is unreliable. Another, another way to dispute what we see happening. Animals and plants can adapt, which is true, but we'll talk about that a little bit more. It hasn't warmed since 1998. That's another myth. And Antarctica is gaining ice. There was a big art article in the newspaper today about Antarctica and the ice sheet. Uh, it's a very difficult question to get your arms around from a research perspective. So these are the myths. And, and so in the presentation today, I'm going to talk about these indirectly. But you should have my opinion, at least, and the science opinion on, on each of these. And then I wanted to add one, one other comment, is that Everyone's entitled to their own opinion, but not their own facts, OK? So it's the ignorance of the facts that really are getting us in trouble. And so we really need to base policy on facts, policy on science, and so forth. OK, so a few definitions I'm going to throw at you. And uh, most of you are aware of these anyway. Weather, what is weather? Well, weather is the condition of the atmosphere at a particular place and time, OK? It's defined by sunshine, wind, clouds, et cetera, whether it's raining or not, and so forth. Whereas climate 
is the composite of weather over a long period of time. So Mark Twain once said, climate's what you expect and weather's what you get. <laughs> so that's another way to, to express this. So the important distinction between weather and climate is that people get confused by this. And so they will say, well, global warming must be a, a hoax because it's cool in Lincoln today, unseasonably cool in Lincoln, so they dismiss climate change. They're talking about weather patterns, okay? Daily weather patterns, weekly, monthly, variability, and so forth. We're looking at long-term changes in climate. We're looking at trends. So one could ask the question, why is climate important? Well, climate determines the distribution of plant and animal species on our planet. It determines what crops we grow. How, build we how big we build reservoirs, the size of dams, road construction, our health related to plant and animal, uh, plant and, and diseases and things like that, that that occur. These are all based upon climate. If we change our climate, if we change our extremes, this has a tremendous impact on society. How we design our buildings, how we design all kinds of things, it's based upon climate. So. Typically, we've thought of climate as variable, but stationary. So we use the past 50 or 75 years of climate to design something for the future. Well, there was a famous article a few years ago, it was written, and the title of the article was, Stationarity is Dead. So a stationary climate is no longer what we're looking at in the future. Therefore, using the past to predict the future is a dangerous thing to do. We need to be looking at the future as different from the past and trying to model and, and estimate what the, those changes are going to be. Okay, so Steve Colbert said this. This is mocking this, this argument about weather versus climate <laughs> and so forth. And so uh, a lot of the political satirists have... Uh, have gotten into this, gotten into this issue. Okay, another definition is you hear the term global warming and you hear the term climate change. And sometimes we get questions, well, what's the difference? Is there a difference? Which do you prefer and so forth? Well, global warming really refers to the increase in temperature that we're seeing around the globe. Whereas climate change is much broader. It implies all of those side effects that are associated with that increase in temperature changes in precipitation patterns, the number of stress days, high temperature stress days, and so forth. All of these things are part of what we would refer to as climate change. So it's much broader. So I prefer the term climate change over the term global warming. Okay, let's talk a little bit about climate change science. Um, this idea that there's no consensus, there's no agreement, well, that's just absolutely not true. For more than a decade, there have been a number of surveys of scientists, climate scientists, with regards to their views on global warming or climate change and the role of humans in that process. And so the literature tells us that 97% of climate scientists agree that yes, the climate is changing and that humans are the predominant cause. Sometimes you see on television, they'll have a denier and they'll have a climate scientist like Bill Nye or somebody on a panel 
It's like one to one. Wait a minute, that's unfair. I don't know whether any of you saw the uh, uh, John Oliver show on HBO in which he actually had three deniers on stage and he brought up 97 <laughs> to accurately represent the debate, okay? Well, in fact, there was a study done just this, this year in which a gentleman looked at the peer-reviewed journal articles published in 2013 and 2014. He found 24,000 that were focused on the issue of climate change, and there were only four where the person was denying that climate change was real and that humans were the cause. So his conclusion was, well, the percentage is more like 99.999%. So there is consensus, okay? Now, the natural forces. We know there are natural forces that affect our climate. We know there have been ice ages. We know that there have been warm periods. And these are caused by variations in the Earth's orbit, by wobbling of the Earth on its axis, variations in the amount of energy that we receive from the sun. So in particular, the variations in the Earth orbit and the wobbling of the Earth, these are changes that have occurred naturally. They continue to occur. They will continue to occur in the future. But these happen over long periods of time, literally thousands of years where these kinds of changes have occurred. You don't go into an ice age and come out of an ice age overnight. These things really take tens of thousands of years for these things to happen. Obviously, the eruption of volcanoes this puts a lot of ash and chemicals and other things into the atmosphere, and this can cool the planet. And things like El Nino, which you're starting to hear a lot about now because there's a Godzilla El Nino that's developing out in the Pacific, uh, may break the California drought. Uh, we'll see. Anyway, so these, th these natural forces have been occurring. They will occur in the future and so on. This is much different than what we're talking about today. So on the issue of it's the sun, that myth, it's the sun. People say, well, the sun is putting out more energy. That's why it's warming. Okay, so here you see a plot of global mean temperature, and you see the red line the increase. I've drawn a line through dashed line through that. It shows the trend that's occurred. If you pair that up with radiation or the energy from the sun, you actually see that since 1960, the amount of energy we've been receiving from the sun is declining. So to say this is it's the sun that's caused causing the warming just doesn't follow. Okay. So that's one, one myth that we can put to rest. Now, in terms of anthropogenic factors, in other words, human factors that are affecting our climate, the one we hear the most about, of course, is carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases that we're adding to the atmosphere through the burning of fossil fuels, et cetera. And so that's, that's the biggie. But you also have changes in aerosol particles from burning fossil fuels and burning of forests and so forth. You see the smoke in the lower right-hand corner from, from fires from 2012. Um, fires that are going on in the western United States, obviously contributing a lot, of, a lot of smoke. I heard an interesting statistic the other day as a sidebar. The, the fire burning season 
in the western United States now is 78 days longer than it used to be. And the U.S. Forest Service is spending two-thirds of their budget fighting fires. And these fires are the result of some policy issues, but also higher temperatures, drying, and so forth. And then you also have changes in land use, because there are a lot of us on this planet, seven plus billion, and we really just totally modified, mutilated the Earth's surface. And so we've really changed the albedo or the reflectivity. So these human things are, are going on, and these are what are really important today in terms of these, these shorter time frame changes that we're seeing and will continue to see in the future. So going back to your high school science classes, you know the atmosphere is made up largely of nitrogen and, and uh, nitrogen and oxygen. But we have 1% of the atmosphere that's made up of these greenhouse gases. And we say, well, 1%, that's so small, it couldn't really make a difference. Well, the reality is that without these greenhouse gases, we would be at least 57 degrees cooler than we are right now on this planet. So life wouldn't exist as we know it. So these, gr these greenhouse gases are the insulator, or the blanket, that makes life as we know it uh, possible on, on planet Earth. So, if you look at the Earth's energy balance, we receive almost all of our energy from the sun, you know that. And this energy that comes from the sun is shortwave radiation and the, the atmosphere, the Earth's atmosphere, is relatively transparent to that. So it's able to pass through the atmosphere, it reaches the Earth's surface where it's absorbed and it's re-radiated from the Earth's surface as longer wave infrared radiation. And if the amount of energy that we're receiving is the same as what's leaving on average, then we have what would be called a steady state. So the climate essentially, it varies from year to year, month to month, and so on, but over the longer term, it's at a steady, steady state. So then we have the greenhouse effect, which is what I just described in terms of allowing shortwave sunlight to pass through the atmosphere to the Earth's surface. So this is a natural, natural force. This is a natural process. But what's happening is because we're loading the atmosphere with CO2, methane, and other greenhouse gases, is that we're changing the heat balance. We're changing the amount of heat that the Earth's atmosphere and the Earth retains. And so we're upsetting that steady state that I mentioned a few minutes ago. And so it's the upsetting of that steady state which is really causing our problems. And it's just going to get worse if we don't do something about it. So here you see a plot, if you look at the yellow line at, at the bottom there, this is CO2 levels in the atmosphere for the last 800,000 years. And if you look at that, and, and I've drawn a line across here at the pre-industrial CO2 levels, when at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution we had approximately 280 parts per million of CO2 in the atmosphere. And you can see over the 800,000 years, we really have hardly ever exceeded that 280 parts per million. Now people will say, well, how do we know how much carbon dioxide was in the atmosphere 800,000 years ago? Well, if you go to your ice sheets and you drill, you core down and you pull out these cores, 
it's like coring a tree in tree rings. And so you can determine the age of the ice in terms of when it was actually formed. And then you can look at that ice and you can look at the bubbles in that ice and you can determine the concentration of carbon dioxide in those bubbles. So you know what the atmosphere was like when that ice was formed. So we can actually go back and look at the paleoclimates by looking at ice cores, by looking at tree rings, by looking at lake bed sediments and these kinds of things. We can reconstruct the paleoclimate history of the Earth. So in 2013, we were at 400 parts per million. So we've gone from 280 to 400 parts per million. And if we zoom in and look at the last five years or so, you can see how this trend just continues. So we crossed 400 parts per million in 2013. 2014, we were above that. So this, this variability that you see is the direct result of the greening of the North, Northern Hemisphere. So when the Northern Hemisphere greens up in summer, it's taking more carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. But then when it, when it plants the nest in the fall, then you don't have that because most of the land mass on Earth is in the Northern Hemisphere. So you have this fluctuation that goes on every year. But again, look at the trend. The trend is what it's, what's important. And it's not just carbon dioxide, which is in the upper left-hand corner, but it's methane, it's nitrous oxide. And if you look at the lower right-hand corner, these are chlorofluorocarbons. You remember all the issues with the ozone hole back in the 1990s, where we had some international treaties to control the release of chlorofluorocarbons into the atmosphere. And as a result, we've actually seen a plateauing and a decline in the ozone hole, we're trying to fix that problem, okay? So international treaties can mean an awful lot in trying to address this, which is what they're gonna be talking about in Paris in December. Okay, so observe changes in climate. So if in fact we're seeing the Earth's climate change, which we I think all agreed that the Earth's climate is changing, then if we looked at the data for different parameters to verify whether or not it's reflecting that change, you can see all the white arrows here are showing where we should, should be seeing an increase. So the temperature of the air over land, over water, in the lower levels of the atmosphere, in the troposphere, ocean heat content should be going up, sea level should be rising because you have thermal expansion of the, of the water in the ocean as it gets warmer and so on. Uh, you ought to see an increase in, in sea surface temperatures and so forth. And what you should see declining would be glaciers and ice sheets. You would see declining sea ice and you would see declining snow cover. And if you look at the data for all 10 of these indicators, you see that it, it's, they're doing exactly what we would expect them to be doing. In fact, have any of you been to Glacier National Park recently? There used to be 125, 130 glaciers in Glacier National Park now, I think it's down to about 25, 26, something like that. The glaciers are disappearing. So are they gonna change the name of the park someday? Maybe, I don't know, <laughs> we'll see. So if you look at, this is for a period from um, 1900 to, to 2014, 
So this shows the warming that's occurred. You can see there's more warming in the polar areas. Uh, quite a bit of warming over the Amazon, parts of Brazil, and so forth. We have some areas in gray where we don't have much data. So this is the warming that's, been, that's occurred over the last 100 to uh, 115 years or so. And you can see it's, it's, it's highly variable. So you have different climate controls affecting the climate of different areas on the Earth. So you're not, you don't expect every area to warm at the same rate. And in fact, in some cases, you may see a little bit of cooling because of what's happening locally with, more with, with regards to a microclimate. Okay, so what I'm going to show you here is an animation. So this is an animation of global mean temperature from 1884 through 2012. And so if you see the scale at the bottom, the yellow and red tones are going to reflect warmer periods or warmer areas on the Earth for that particular year. And the blues are going to represent areas that were cooler for that particular year. So we're looking at annual sort of weather patterns, but we're looking at those in a sequence from 1884 to 2012. So if you can see the date, the date there in the lower sort of center is uh, 1884. So let me start this animation. So you see how the, the weather patterns are changing every year. You have some areas that are colder than the average and some that are warmer than the average and so forth. So you see a lot of variability from year to year. This is an animation that was developed by NASA. So you're getting close to the period now, get to about 1970. And look what happens after 1970. 2012. So someone says to you, no, the Earth's climate isn't changing. You will say, yes, it is. <laughs> I've just seen an anim animation. We didn't make this stuff up, you know. Okay, so the trend is important. So we're looking at the trend, that animation reflected that, that trend. And so the trend is very important uh, for that myth that says, well, it hasn't warmed since 1998. Well, previous analysis shows that there seemed to be a plateauing of global mean temperature around 1998-2000. And just recently, NOAA, reanalyzed that data and found some biases in the data. And so as a result of that, they ran the analysis again. And when they ran the analysis again, whoops, for some reason that didn't project. Anyway, the, when they ran the analysis again, it showed that really there has not been a cooling, that the trend has continued up since 1998-2000 and is continuing to go up. So there's a correction in the, in the data analysis. So if we look at the, the changes across the U.S., we see that the greatest amount of warming has been, of course, along the northern zone. Again, the polar areas are warming at about twice the rate of the mid-latitudes and the tropics. Uh, the western United States, uh, there's been more warming. Some cooling in the southeast, and Nebraska's kind of in the middle. Some areas that are warm, warming and warming more than others. Uh, 
uh, and so forth. So Nebraska, again, is kind of at a, at a, at a midpoint. Um, if you look at what's happening with plant hardiness zones, uh, which is you know where we can grow plants and crops and things you want to put in your garden. Uh, in 1990, the line, plant hardiness zone line between zones four and five ran through central Nebraska. Uh, the, the 2012 map shows that this had moved up to the border with South Dakota. So we're having these shifts. Things are moving northward because of warmer, warmer temperatures. Another way to see that the climate's changing is if you have a stationary climate, you would expect to be breaking the ratio between breaking high temperature records and low temperature records should be essentially one to one. So if you look at this over the last several decades, you see back in the 1950s, it was about one to one. For every high temperature record you broke, you also broke a, a, a minimum temperature record. But look at what's happened since then, in 1990s and 2000s. So now we're breaking high temperature records at a rate of two to one over low temperature records. It's just an example of how the temperature, everything is warming. So we have higher uh, max or minimum temperatures uh, in the wintertime and also in the summertime. And then we also have higher temperatures, uh, maximum temperatures. And this will vary regionally. If we look at the increase in the frost-free season for the Great Plains as a whole, there's been an increase of about 10 days per year. For Nebraska, it varies between about one, one week and three weeks, depending on what part of the state. So the growing season is getting longer. If you look at changes in precipitation, you can see that there's been, there are areas of the country where there's an increase in precipitation over the uh, recent decades uh, in areas where you're experiencing some drying. Uh, Another huge factor, and John mentioned Katrina, um, the number of extreme events that are occurring. And these extreme events are not only costly in terms of human lives, human property, and so forth, but they're costly in terms of economic and environmental damage. And so the red, red bars at the bottom are showing the, the trend, which there is none, of geophysical natural events like earthquakes and so on. But if you look at those that are based upon what's happening in the atmosphere, the meteorological, hydrological events, you see a dramatic train trend upward. And so we're all paying for this. We're paying for this in terms of the 2012 drought, the federal government spent over $60 billion in drought relief. Uh, Superstorm Sandy costs us over $50 billion in terms of the damages and trying to rebuild. And Katrina, tremendous event too. So you're, you're seeing these kinds of changes and who's paying for these? It's you as taxpayers are paying to rebuild these areas that are being uh, hammered by these extreme events. We've seen a tremendous increase in the number of events, the heavy precipitation events. Uh, Lincoln, Nebraska this last year is a good example of that. We had two 100 year rainfalls in six months seven months. Okay, so last October and this May, tremendous rainfall events. Okay, so we're seeing this pattern actually all over the country, but particularly in the eastern United States. In the Great Plains, on average, there's been a 16% increase in the frequency of these heavy precipitation events. Now, what does that mean? Well, it transla translates into more floods. It translates into more soil erosion, less water going into the soil, recharging the groundwater more running off, taking soil with it, 
pesticides, nutrients, and so forth into our streams and other water bodies. So this is a, this is a tremendous cost as well. So separating natural from human factors. So these unreliable computer models that the, the myth said, if you run these, a computer model and you do not allow an increase in these models in the greenhouse gases, in other words, you hold the greenhouse gases constant, stabilized, you get a line that's, that you see here in green that extends out towards the right side of the, of the graph, okay? If you then put into the models the increase in carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases, you get what you see here with the purple. And the black line shows the actual global mean temperature. So in other words, these models are able to replicate what we're seeing in global mean temperature, but only if we include the increase in greenhouse gases. If we don't include that, then it actually would show that we may be going into a cooling. So it's overriding, overriding that. Okay, projections, uh, future climate for Nebraska. This is all what you maybe you're most interested in. But again, it comes down to, again, these models. The difficulty with the models in terms of projecting to the future is you're trying to project what that future is going to be, but you don't know what the greenhouse gas concentrations are going to be. So, you know, in 2050, what's going to be the CO2 level? So what, they, what the, the modelers do is they project future climate under a number of different scenarios. One scenario could be, oh, we, we're going to really uh, reduce the amount of greenhouse gases, amount of burning of fossil fuels that we're doing, and we're going to reduce that dramatically, okay? But the red line is actually business as usual. This is where we are now. This is business as usual. So if we don't do anything, we're going to follow that red line. So when you, when you think about these computer models, and you see a range, they say, well, the range in temperature is between this and this for the future. That's because they don't know what that future is going to be in terms of greenhouse gas concentrations. So they have to run various scenarios. It's also a good way to demonstrate that if we do something, we can actually make this problem not go away, but we can let, make it less, less of a problem. So temperature increases for Nebraska. And these are coming from the uh, National Climate Assessment. Uh, the U.S. government produces uh, National Climate Assessment. They just completed and published last May a year ago, May of 14. The National Climate Assessment is the third National Climate Assessment where they look at all the information and all the data, and then they try to make projections for different sectors, different regions, and so forth. And their maps show that for Nebraska, you project out to the last quarter of this century, now understand that the, ch the climate is changing already, but we're projecting out towards the last quarter of this century. And if you take the business as usual scenario, which is what we're on right now, unless we do something about it, we're looking at an increase at eight to nine degrees for Nebraska. One to two degrees is significant. Eight to nine degrees is just frightening, okay? Um, Secondly, we're projecting then with these models that the number of high temperature stress days are going to increase. So you're not even going to have warmer nights. 
but you're going to have more, a higher frequency of these high temperature stress days, days over 90 degrees. And you know what impact that has on humans, but also on crops and so on. During a heat wave in 2002, I believe it was in Europe, uh, the heat wave resulted in 35,000 deaths in Europe. Um, and this happens in major cities in the United States as well. So remember this figure of say 20 to 25 additional high temperature stress days by the last quarter of this century, because I'll come back to that. The number of warm nights increases, which we've mentioned, the frost-free season continues to increase. There's some good news and there's some bad news uh, possibly associated with that. So here are two of these scenarios. So the lower emission scenario is on the left in which we would expect maybe for Nebraska to fall in the four to five degree range in terms of increase in temperature. The business as usual scenario, however, puts us in the eight to nine degrees. So again, these maps are coming out of the National Climate Assessment Report. In terms of the number of high temperature stress days, um, on the upper, upper left-hand corner there, you see the average based on 1961 through 1979. Um, and then with the lower emission scenario out to 2080 to 2099, and then the higher emission scenario. So again, the number, the increase in the number of high temperature stress days. So to reflect back on the high temperature stress days, 2012, the drought three years ago that we had, not just in Nebraska, but around the country, where we had approximately two-thirds of the country in some level of drought severity. And Nebraska was kind of right in the bullseye of that. So when you think of droughts, you think of droughts as mainly a deficiency of precipitation. But an important factor in determining the severity of a drought is what kind of temperatures you're having. So I don't know, did anybody here live through the Dust Bowl? 30s? Okay, we have a few hands, okay. So there you had a drought coupled with very high temperature stress, high winds and very low humidity. All these things just aggravate and make the drought, drought much worse. So we had two thirds of the country in some level of drought severity in, in 2012. So what about high temperature stress during the drought of 2012? Well, here's a map showing the number of days over 100 degrees between June 1st and September 15th. So you can see where those high temperatures were associated with and pretty much coincides with where you know, the drought areas were. So what I've done is I pulled out a few examples from Nebraska because the numbers are so small you couldn't see them. Um, so for Lincoln, Lincoln on average, if you look at the lower, lower left-hand side, Lincoln on average has about five days over 100 degrees per year. In 2012, we had 17. McCook averages about 11 days per year, they had 37. Okay, so you see this, this sort of pattern. So if you think about the projection of high temperature stress days for the future, towards the last quarter of this century, essentially 2012 could be thought of as an average year. And so this is, this is frightening, okay? So more motivation for taking, taking action. Uh, groundwater levels. We saw a decline in groundwater levels throughout a large portion of Nebraska from the um, uh, 
period from the spring of 2012, so going into this drought, because this drought came on very, very quickly in 2012, through the spring of 2013. So groundwater levels around the state, particularly the eastern half of the state and parts of the southwest, dropped anywhere from five to 15 feet in one year. So you ask the question, well, California's in their fourth year of drought. They're pumping groundwater like crazy with no regulation, literally no regulation. Uh, we're trying to control our withdrawals. But what if the, the 2012 drought would have gone on in 2013 and 2014 and 2015? What if we had a, a duplication of what happened in the 1930s or the 1950s, where we had back-to-back-to-back -to -back -to -back years of drought? So, so far, our, our aquifer levels in the state have recovered because we've had some wet years since 2012. But what if that hadn't happened? And the projection for the future is for the central plains for drought maybe to become the new normal because of higher temperatures and more erratic rainfall, more uh, high intensity rainfall events and, and so forth. So in terms of precipitation, precipitation is much harder to project into the future. Um, it's, it's, it's indicated from the models that probably for the northern plains is there's gonna continue to be an increase in precipitation. Southern plains, more of a, a continuing decrease, very little change in winter and spring precipitation although we're seeing less and less precipitation come in the form of snow because of the higher, higher temperatures and so forth. That doesn't preclude that we're gonna have snow. I don't know whether you, you probably saw the, uh, the article when Senator Imhoff, who is a huge uh, global warming climate change uh, skeptic, he came into the floor of the Senate with a snowball and said this is proof that global warming doesn't exist. Uh, I don't need to say anything more about that. <laughs> um, the continued increase in heavy precipitation, this is uh, expected to continue into the, f into the future. Um, and so if you, if you sort of match up the temperature changes we're going to see with um, not much change in precipitation, a little bit of an increase here and there in certain seasons, maybe not, maybe a decrease in other seasons, a drying in the central plains possibly, that really we're going to be more into a water deficit in the future. So this region is likely to dry out much more so than we have in the last uh, several decades. So soil moisture as a result, soil moisture reflects these patterns, a decline in soil moisture, uh, increase in flood magnitudes. We're already seeing this along the, well, in the Midwest, but also on the eastern edge of the, of the Great Plains because of these high, high intensity precipitation events. Snow cover is a big issue, not necessarily in Nebraska. It, the fact is, if we look at snowpack in the western states, it's going down, and it's going down dramatically because the snow season is getting shorter and shorter because of higher temperatures. So it's, it's, it's accumulating later in, the spring, or later in the fall. It's melting off earlier in the spring. Because of warmer temperatures during the winter, more of it is actually evaporating into the atmosphere and it never even enters the stream flow and hydrologic system. So there's a dramatic change that's going on in the western United States, which has huge concerns for people that rely on Colorado River water. But in Nebraska, we rely on flow through the flat <coughs> and through the Missouri River. And so changes in snowpack in the Rockies is a, is a huge factor for us. So if we look at the, the trend in what's referred to as uh, the uh, snow water equivalent, 
I drew a red line at about where we are now in, in 2015. So we've seen a decline in snowpack in the west up to this point. But if we project that into the future using these models, you can see how the snowpack is projected to continue to decline, which really is going to change water management in the west dramatically. Now, one of the salvations in Nebraska is we have a lot of groundwater. And so the fact that we've been pumping a lot of groundwater and doing a lot of irrigation has actually helped to keep down some of the uh, summertime temperatures. Um, and so I guess that's a positive. Um, but if you think about this in terms of the future with less surface water coming in from snowpack, with more variable precipitation, higher temperatures, less groundwater recharge, you have to question, you know, how viable is irrigation at the current scale that is practiced in Nebraska going to be for the future? So this is, this is a huge, I think, research question for the future. Okay, takeaway points. I'm almost done, folks. Um, assessing the impacts of projected changes. Um, obviously, the consequences on different sectors is going to depend heavily on the resilience of that sector. It's also going to depend upon how quickly that sector adapts, makes adjustments to the kinds of changes that are going to be seen. I sometimes hear from farmers, uh, and this was a, a point in the National Climate Assessment Report, where farmers will say, well, I, I've dealt, my entire life I've dealt with the variability of weather. So I can deal with anything in the future. But the conclusion of the National Climate Assessment Report was, what you're gonna see in the future is way outside of the range of everything, anything you've seen in the past. So you're gonna have to come up with more innovative techniques, more innovative tools in order to manage, and that's gonna mean obviously changing in agricultural practices and, and maybe the crops that you grow and so forth. Um, also, the question about the availability of groundwater and what are we gonna do about reducing the greenhouse gas concentrations in the atmosphere in the future? in order to reduce the amount of warming that we're going to see and then the side effects of that warming in terms of precipitation. So bottom line here is essentially that, you know, with the increase in temperatures and high temperature stress days, uh, you know, we're more likely to be drying out than to be getting weather in the, in the Central Plains areas. Okay, so where do we go from here? So we talk about solutions. Uh, I mean, I've been very, very pleased to see the number of grassroots organizations, NGOs that have taken the, the National Nebraska Climate Change Report and are trying to use that to motivate people to change, to change the focus of their organizations, to focus on this particular issue, developing educational programs and so forth, that's really important. Uh, UNL Extension has developed now a climate resiliency action team, uh, which we've been working on for about the past year or so, and um, that's going to be, um, launched this fall with a number of meetings, so it's going to start with training education or ed extension educators <coughs> on some of the issues and the science behind climate change so they can work more effectively with, with clientele. Uh, oops. Um, Lincoln Electric System, the, the move to go to more alternative energy sources, this is a huge positive. We need to see more of that. Game and Parks Commission uh, using the Nebraska Climate Change Report and developing a uh, wildlife action plan where they actually incorporate these projected changes in climate into their planning strategy. Um, Nebraska is required to have a natural hazard mitigation plan 
They're required by FEMA to have this, and FEMA now has a requirement that these, these natural hazard mitigation plans take into account changes in the incidence of floods, droughts, heat waves, et cetera. And so that's a step in the right direction, even though some members of Congress have written letters trying to get EP or FEMA to remove that restriction. Uh, this is uh, unbelievable. But anyway, uh, anything they can do to fight this battle of accepting climate change. Uh, Kim mentioned uh, this in her introductory remarks. Um, one of the things as a follow-on to the climate change report is that we're organizing a series of eight sector-based roundtables. And so I've reached out to a number of organizers uh, to, in fact, hold these roundtables beginning next month in through the month of October. Uh, and these are the roundtables that we're going to be doing and the leadership on those roundtables. So I'm working with them. Kim is working with them um, in order to bring these about. So the invitation's about to go out on these. They're invitation only uh, because we have to control because of the size of venues. And the organizers are footing the bill for this. So they're paying for lunch and refreshment breaks and the venues and so forth. So generally there will be about 50 to 60 stakeholders at each of these roundtables talking about adaptation and mitigation <coughs> strategies for the future. Uh, four of these roundtables are in fact going to have plenary talks the day before which will be open to the public. So Kim is in fact doing one for faith communities. There's going to be one for the human health sector, the College of Public Health at UNMC, the dean of that college is going to be giving, looking at the implications of climate change on human health, which a lot of people have ignored that issue, but that is a huge issue. The impacts of that on human health is just going to be very, very dramatic. Um, we're also going to have for ecosystems and also for the forests and fire uh, plenary talks the day before the round table. So you're all welcome to come to those. They'll be in different venues uh, around Lincoln for the most part, except for the one on human health that will be at UNMC in Omaha. Okay, so after we complete those eight roundtables, we're going to bring together the organizers, the lessons learned from those eight roundtables, and we're going we're to look at the sort of cross-cutting issues between those different sectors. We're going to publish a report, and then we're going to give that report to our state senators. And we're going to say... Like a lot of other states, we think Nebraska needs to develop a climate change action plan. And so if you look at a map of those states with plans, there are about 15, 16, 17 states with climate change action plans. Uh, some, are, some are in the process. Some have been in place. The dots you see on the map are, are cities that have actually developed climate change action plans. And so... Uh, I think it's important that Nebraska follows suit. Colorado just completed such a plan. We could learn a lot from the experiences of these, of these other states. So this is my last slide, um, which essentially says we need to plan for the future instead of just letting it run into us. So thank you very much. We'll be glad to take your questions.
Based on the number of question cards that are coming in, we could be here. Is there a plan to serve dinner or what? <laughs> Jimmy John's, okay. Okay, you want to take the orders? <laughs> okay, all right. Well, we do have a first question, which is uh, how big of an impact does agriculture and the animal animals for food industry have on climate change, and why don't we hear much about it? Um, well, certainly the agricultural sector is, uh, is, a, is a huge factor in terms of contrib contributing to the problem, in terms of greenhouse gases, methane, and, and so forth. I don't think so. I'm using this one. You can't hear? I'll hold it up. Okay. Is that better? Okay. When my arm gets tired, will you come up and help me? Okay. Okay, so... Um, yeah, I mean the agricultural uh, industry, agriculture sector is a is a is a contributor to the problem, but they're also potentially they can be a huge part of the solution to the problem. Uh, carbon sequestration in soils is something that's been getting a lot of attention, but historically, if you look back, um, when there was a lot of discussion about climate change uh, more than a decade ago. Um, a lot of the agricultural sector sort of walked away from the discussion table. They really were not participating in those discussions. Um, and that's, that was unfortunate, but the positive thing is now I think agriculture's back at the table because they see they're just, a, they're not only a contributor, but they're also a solution. And so it's important for them to be weighing in on all the discussions. So one of our sector-based roundtables is gonna focus on agriculture food and water in Nebraska, uh, with INR being a sponsor and also the Water for Food Institute being a sponsor. So obviously they need to come back to the table and, and I think they are back at the table. So. Can I that? You certainly can. Um, one thing that I learned last week, there was a new study that was released having to do with this topic, that's showing that the uh, amount of nitrous oxide that's being released by rivers and lakes from agricultural runoff from fertilizers is 40% higher than scientists had previously estimated. And if you notice on Don's slide about greenhouse gas emissions, I actually didn't know this. Nitrous oxide is a greenhouse gas and it uh, does get emitted into the atmosphere from agricultural runoff. So that's definitely one area where the agricultural sector could work on mitigation strategies. Agreed, okay. Uh, another question. Uh, Dollars are always the bottom line. How do we help the poor and specifically a poor church uh, get with the program of mitigating, mitigating climate change? Um, you know, when, 
when I hear discussion about um, uh, climate change and also vulnerability related to climate change, and, and you look at the kinds of changes that are projected, not just for here, but all around the world, I think we need to think about climate change in the sense that who are the most vulnerable? I mean, who are the most vulnerable to a flood event? Who are most vulnerable to a hurricane? Who are most vulnerable to a drought? And, and those most vulnerable are the people that are the poorest, the people that have the less, less resources available to them, countries that have a less, less resources. And so um, it's important that we think of this issue not just in terms of, uh, yeah, broad scale in terms of how it affects society, but in particular, how it's going to affect those people that really don't have the resources to respond to this, whether it's in your local community, whether it's in your church, uh, whether it's nationally or within your region, your state, and so forth. And we all need to work together to solve this problem, not just for ourselves, but for those people that are the most vulnerable. Um, <laughs> okay, I figured you would. So. Um, the question was asking what can a, a poor church do to, to address the problem? And um, that's a, thanks, that's a, a good question. That's a kind of a common question that a lot of people think, what, what can I do? Um, there are m massive amounts of money that are very invested in not changing the status quo. And sometimes it can seem demoralizing to try to go up against that being just an individual or just a small church, just a small organization. But I wanna really emphasize how important each and every one of your voices is and each and every one of your organizations or churches or so on. We have a lot more power than we think we have. Letters to the editor, op-eds, coming to events like this, voting makes an enormous difference. Speaking to your elected representatives makes an enormous difference. And those of us who've been working on these grassroots efforts have seen huge changes precisely because of efforts like that. So don't look at it in terms of what can a poor church do. Look at it in terms, well, to quote John F. Kennedy, what can you not do? <laughs> Believe it or not, I have an opinion too. Uh, <laughs> the, I, I was struck I was struck by a question that came up at the end of the presentation of the report uh, last September about what to do. And to a person, the team that put out the report said one word, vote. And of course, what we have to realize is that before we get to the point of voting, there's a lot that goes into the process. Start two, four, six years out. And let me tell you, we do have a few good elected officials here today, but we have even more, even better elected officials in the room that didn't agree to run yet. Because if we don't do it, if you don't do it, it's not gonna happen. I mean, we all have to take responsibility, but it's the political uh, situation that's blocking this. There's not controversy on the science. Except for these annoying scientists, they always think they have to make it better and more precise and pick on each other. That's their job. But in reality, there's not a lot of, of more work to be done there to take action. There's more than enough information to take action. So one of the places to do that, of course, is the international scale at, in Paris in a few months. 
um, at the, our federal level. But we've got a question here about um, very local action. What about the city of Lincoln? And uh, wonder if you've had any discussions with the city about a climate action plan for the city. That's the question that we have. Uh, yes, we have. Um, in fact, I invited, um, when we were putting together the report um, and looking at commentaries, one of the chapters in the National Climate Assessment Report was focused on urban, urban communities, urban systems, urban infrastructure uh, in terms of the implications of climate change for that particular sector. And I've actually been very impressed with what the city of Lincoln has been doing and what they want to continue to do. So we've worked very closely with Milo Mumgard, who unfortunately just left the mayor's office, but he's still working with us. One of the roundtables that we're going to be doing is focused on urban and rural communities. And so we want to bring those sectors together, and that'll be happening on September 22nd uh, here in Lincoln in association with the League of, Munici League of Municipalities. And so the city of Lincoln has actually been quite aggressive, and I think they can be a role model, and I think it will continue to be. I know Mayor Beitler at the environmental uh, um, meeting that I went to at, when I first met Kim, um, you know, Mayor Beitler referred to, the, to our report as a game changer. A game changer for the city of Lincoln, but also a game changer for the state of Nebraska. And I think that's, uh, that's very, very true. So the city's trying to take this, absorb this and, and utilize it, because it's very important when you're looking at designing uh, uh, stormwater systems, when you're des designing your streets, your Lincoln water supply system, when you're looking at the future, you have to be looking at a changing climate and how that's going to affect the demand for that resource in light of the fact that you're also having an increasing population. So these things are important. So, uh, Here's an interesting question. How do we solve climate change in a nonpartisan way? <laughs> yeah, uh, b believe it or not, you know, Science isn't a partisan issue. Um, it's, it's one of the most disheartening things is to hear some of our leadership in Washington, but at the state level as well, not just in this state, but other states that totally, not only disregard the science, and they say things like, I'm not a scientist. <laughs> it's like, well, go talk to some scientists, you know. <laughs> Read the literature. Um, you know, have your staffers. Isn't that why you have staffers that they educate you on various issues of importance to the to the constituents that you represent? So, uh, coming back to John's comment, really it comes down to you voting, for you challenging your elected officials, both in the the election process, but also after they're in office, challenge them on this issue and not accept ridiculous statements like I read in the media a week or so ago with regards to one of our elected officials where, where the person said, well, the science is still not resolved. It's like, who told you that? It's like, so that, that's really disappointing. And I know after the, um, after the Herman lecture when we had our panel, I had a, person come up to me, one of the reporters came up to me afterwards, 
And they said, what's the one thing that sort of keeps you up at night on this issue? And I said, it's the fact that our elected officials, for the most part, by and large, are ignoring this issue. And they talk about all kinds of other things, and they use science to support other decisions, but when it comes to this issue, they ignore the science. So that's something that would tend to keep me up at night. I think probably keeps this young lady up at night as well. So anyway, um, comments? You want to add anything? I would just say that um, I think it's really important for us all to keep in mind that things will change and to believe in the positive outcome. If, if, you know, if we looked at political realities over the same time span that Don's illustration was of temperature increases, we would see how much political realities have shifted over time too. And things that parties stand for shift over time and issues shift dramatically over time. And this will shift too. I am convinced that this will cease being a political um, minefield in the next, I would say, in the next few years. Because it's getting to the point where the politicians simply cannot ignore this issue anymore. So again, the importance of reaching out to your elected representatives, um, either by phone, email, when they come here to Lincoln, and if they're national, and they hold town hall meetings, go to the town hall meetings, raise your hand, ask questions, write letters to the editor, they read those letters to the editor as a way to sense public opinion. Um, just keep the pressure on and, um, and the tides will shift soon. Okay, another question that's, we've kind of danced around a bit. Um, what is the single greatest thing that can be done to mitigate climate change? Um, well, obviously we need to uh, reduce significantly greenhouse gas emissions. So that is really critical. Um, the science community has basically said that we, we need to stay within a one to two degree increase in temperature where society can better adapt to that level of change. But as you saw from some of the slides that I showed, when you're talking four, five, eight, nine degrees change, this is well outside of what we can adapt to easily uh, without tremendous costs. And so when I hear the debate about some of the EPA regulations that are being put into place right now and what the cost of those are going to be to individuals in the short term and you weigh that against the cost of inaction on this issue. I mean, it's really infinitesimal. So anyway, it's, it's, uh, that is the big issue, but we all are a part of this. We all need to do things individually and as a group and lobbying our legislature and so forth. But the key is really we need to reduce these greenhouse gas emissions. And so that takes changes in national policy. It takes changes in global policy to deal with this. We all need to come together. So. Um, let's see. Um, here's a question. In a climatology or meteorology class in the mid-80s, we were told that a temperature of two to three degrees centigrade would result in the end of all life on Earth as we know it. Is that no longer applicable? Ken, do you want, Ken, do you want to answer that? <laughs> well, if you were told that, somebody was mistaken. So anyway, yeah, we're still here, and the temperature's going up, but it's going to get more difficult in the, uh, in the future, certainly. So another question. Uh, recently there, uh, 
there were comments at NPPD board meeting indicating denial of climate change. Would you be willing to make a presentation? <laughs> <laughs> sure, yeah. In fact, some of my co-authors, uh, you know, I, we didn't use the word today, preaching to the choir. One could probably say that since we're in a church. But, um, <laughs> but uh, a couple of my colleagues that were co-authors on the report, they really much prefer speaking to a group of people that are essentially deniers and just shooting down all of their arguments. So, yeah, yeah, one of us will come if we get an invitation. So uh, be assured of that. Uh, let's see, do I have more? I guess I have a few more. Um, how does the rate of change in population growth compare with the rate of change in greenhouse gas emissions? Well, this question comes up quite often because, uh, you know, we're at seven plus billion people now. We're headed towards about nine, 9.5 billion people by the middle of this century. And so the questions of water security, food security for those people uh, is a huge issue. And people also say, well, but isn't population growth just kind of like the root cause of a lot of what we're seeing? Well, yeah, it is the root cause of a lot of the problems that we see around the world, trying to feed and growing, growing population and creating all kinds of civil strife and so forth in various regions that are overpopulated and resource poor to deal with those kinds of issues. Um, something I'll just bring up uh, quickly, uh, which I don't know whether you've thought about, but if you've done much reading on this topic, you know that um, one of the huge concerns with regards to climate change is what it's gonna mean for our national security. And I think that oftentimes gets overlooked both on the congressional side but it also gets overlooked, I think, from the public side. Uh, there was recently a study from the uh, General Accounting Office uh, that does studies for Congress. They were asked to look at the um, uh, sort of the susceptibility of U U.S. military bases around the world with regards to the issue of climate change and what the implications of those were on, on uh, these naval, naval bases and other bases. And the implications are tremendous, uh, particularly in areas like naval bases where sea level rise is gonna be a huge factor. But one of the other concerns that with regards to uh, national security is with regards to what this is going to do to the number of wars that occur in the future. If you read any of the literature on the war that's going on in Syria, that war is, was, was fed to a considerable extent by drought and climate change. Uh, lack of water, lack of food leads to political unrest, environmental refugees. I mean, these are huge problems. And so our Defense Department is looking at this very, very closely. And in fact, we had a retired general uh, from the Navy here uh, last fall who talked about the national s uh, security implications of climate change. So this is a very important issue. And it's tied into this issue of population, but it's it's uh, something we really do need to take, uh, take into consideration. Um, okay, uh, question on what about the fate of island nations? Uh, what are the latest projections? Um, you may, if, you, if you read through the climate change report that we've produced, you'll find probably fewer than 50 words about sea level rise. 
because most Nebraskans uh, are not necessarily concerned about that, at least on their doorstep. Um, we tried to focus more on the issues that would affect us. But sea level rise is a huge issue. It's a huge issue for coastal areas. Uh, cities around the, the country and around the world are building seawalls, raising roadbeds and so forth. The city of Miami is doing this. Some of the concerns about this are really dramatic. I saw a video just recently, a short video, that looked at, at the number of high-rise condominiums that are being built right along the coast in Miami. And if you look at, you know, I talked about the stationarity of climate. Well, it's no longer stationary. And if you look at the mortgage rates or the mortgage periods where people are taking out 30-year mortgages and they live close to the sea, it's likely that their property is going to be underwater in some of these cases before they pay off the mortgage. So, you know, to what extent are insurance companies looking at this issue? And it's becoming more and more of an issue. Um, one point I want to make that was on a slide, uh, it's a bullet point that I didn't make when I was showing the slide, is, you know, every year the university does a, a poll of rural Nebraskans with regards to attitudes on different types of things. And there was just a press release on that recently uh, with regards to certain elements of that poll. But we were asked to write some questions with regards to climate change. And so we did that and we just saw the results of that poll um, this last week and, and we'll be, you'll be seeing a press release coming out of the Rural Futures Institute on that. But it was interesting that 61% of rural Nebraskans strongly believe or, well, strongly agree or agree that the state of Nebraska needs to develop a climate change action plan. 61% of rural Nebraska. Rural Nebraska. They also felt that the University of Nebraska needs to be providing leadership on this issue. And uh, so, you know, these are important things that we need to take, I mean, I take these things to my administration. But fortunately at the university, I've found no reluctance whatsoever on the part of, my, of our, our leadership, people that I talk to, Ronnie Green in particular, uh, who is completely supportive of this. And he has said to me that he has received absolutely zero pushback on this report. So that's a very, very positive thing. So that's a step in the right direction. So let's see, we have time for maybe a couple more. Let's see if I have a couple more. Wow, here's a long one. Uh, <laughs> let me take a shorter one, maybe. Uh, Everybody uh, remember that for next time. Shorter <laughs> questions do better. Uh, uh, for any agricultural state, will rural, rural residents be more exposed to climate change than urban? How does that fit with, with voting patterns? Who actually... Uh, elects representatives, senators, uh, to make decisions and so on. So, um, I mean, I think we're all going to be affected in various ways. I think the fact that we live in an urban and more urban environment means that we're somewhat more insulated from some of these changes than rural Nebraskans that are living on a farm and, and so forth. But we're all going to experience this and we're all gonna have to pay the bill um, and so it's important that we reduce the impact of that bill as much as we can, as soon as, soon as we can. 
So, did you want to stop there, or do you? Um, oh, there's. Um, you have a fairly short one. Well, <laughs> not from this crowd. Oh, okay. You know? No, it's just another um, um, question about. Uh, we keep, and thankfully, keep coming back to the rural, uh, our rural roots in Nebraska, and what does that mean? And I think that's that's been covered very good. But there's also new. Um, do you have anything to comment on the role that the EPA's uh, new climate regulations on power plants might play? Is that a significant thing? Well, I think it is a significant thing. And uh, it's interesting going back to the partisan issue once again. Um, you know, the Republican leadership has kind of stayed away from the climate change issue, as we all know. But if you, if you look at the history of some of the key legislation on clean air, clean water, and so forth, this legislation was passed during Republican administrations. And even, you know, 10, 15 years ago, you had leading Republicans like John McCain talking about things like cap and trade and all of these kinds of things to ward off climate change and to deal with this. And now that party has, has moved away from its roots. And it's, uh, it's, it's unfortunate. I think the Republican Party needs to get back to maybe where they started, which was providing leadership on this particular issue. So, you know, what Obama is doing is using the legislation that's come out of Republican administrations to, in fact, push through some of these regulations because it, it's, it's a role that was given to EPA to do this, to control carbon pollution and so forth. And the courts are upholding that. So you can fight it, but it's really best for all of us. And uh, yeah, there are costs in the short term, but you know, in the longer term, uh, the benefits of this are just tremendous. We need to make progress. So.